0: The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. I'm grateful for this opportunity that I have to be here. So I invite you this morning to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 in particular this morning. And I invite you to have your Bibles out and open in front of you or to turn it on on your device, however you're going to do it, because ultimately when it comes down to it, it's not what I say that really matters. And what I say must be tested against what the scriptures say, because the scriptures are our authority in all things. And so I pray that I will do my best to teach and to explain what the Word of God says Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And I've entitled this morning's message, Going Home Justified, Jesus' Teaching on Justification by Faith Alone. And I hope we see why in just a couple of moments. So let's begin this morning in verse 9. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself Will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. This is how one German monk by the name of Martin Luther labeled this doctrine during the 16th century when the Protestant Reformation was taking place. This year marks the 500th year anniversary of what we know as the Protestant Reformation, which in its essence got back to answer the question, which is one of the most foundational questions that any person and every person must answer. And the question is this, how can sinners who have violated a perfectly holy God's law, how can sinners who have rebelled against a perfectly holy God be brought back into a right relationship with him? And for the Catholic Church at the time, and even today, their answer was simple. Well, you believe in Jesus and, and the key word there is and, and you do things like have baptism, and you attend Mass, and you go to communion, and you go to confession. It was a hybrid version of faith and works. But for Luther... And for others, this teaching didn't seem to square with what the Bible taught, and that's what we're getting at. What does the Bible teach about how a person is justified or how they are made into a right relationship with a holy God? It was passages like Romans 3.28 where Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, the words of Scripture are very clear. Sinners are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul taught this, and so did Jesus right here in this parable. And so it is our responsibility as Christians to hold fast to this teaching as well. You see, we must be clear from the outset that justification by faith alone in Christ alone is an absolute non-negotiable for us. There are lots of things in life that you as Christians can agree to disagree on. Even with other people who are not Christians. But the God-glorifying exclusive Bible truth that sinners are justified by faith alone in Christ alone is not one of them that you can cave on. This is a hill on which to die, so to speak. In fact, Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, gives them... A warning. It's a warning to any of us or to any person who would be tempted to drift towards a trajectory of a gospel that includes being justified by your works. Listen to what Paul writes to the Galatians. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. accursed those are strong words indeed and so it's good for us even as christians for many of you this won't be necessarily something new or radical that you've never heard before but it's always good for us to come back to the core truths of the gospel because what martin luther said was true this is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls and if we lose this doctrine we lose our purpose even as christians And so we should take heed to the warning, lest we drift into error as well. So this morning I have two questions that I think this text answers for us. And the two questions are this. First, what does it mean to be justified? And then the second question is, how can sinners go home justified? And the reason I ask these questions is because I think it really gets to the heart of Jesus' purpose In this parable, you look with me at verse 14 again, and you see that this is the the climax point, the, the main point that Jesus is trying to make. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, the point of this parable is seen in that one word there justified. How does a person go home justified rather than not? For the Pharisees who originally heard this story, who Jesus was talking to, they would have known what it meant to be justified. That word wouldn't have been a foreign term to them, but for many of us today, maybe it seems a bit foreign or foggy in our minds, and so I think it's a good idea just to take a couple minutes and to, re-get our, to get our bearings on what the Bible teaches it means to be justified. So then what does it mean to be justified is the question. Well, the word justified is a legal term, which means paid in full. And it was used in the world of commerce and in the courtrooms of that day. And it was a verdict or a pronouncement that was written on someone's ledger or document that at one point they had a debt that was owing. And when that debt had been paid in full, it was written on their documents or it was pronounced upon them, the verdict that they were justified, that their debt had been paid in full. And when we come to the Bible, that the word justified often takes us to this courtroom scene where every person in the world stands before a holy and perfect God, guilty of violating his law. We stand as sinners condemned before a holy God. And so, in other words, justification has to do with your personal standing before God. And in the biblical sense of the word, to be justified means that your penalty of sin, along with its curse, that is, death, has now been paid in full, and in place of that death sentence... The perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to your account so that God no longer views you as a lawbreaker, guilty of death, but he views you as a perfectly righteous child of his kingdom. It involves at its core a gracious gospel transaction where your debt of sin is placed on Christ, and he takes that penalty And his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law of God is then credited to your account. This is a double transaction. It's a special kind of courtroom where the guilt and penalty of sin is paid and righteousness is then credited. This is what Paul writes in Romans 4. And the book of Romans is is one of the most clear and deep teachings on this doctrine of justification. So when we read of this tax collector going home justified, we're meant to interpret this meaning that the tax collector, who, yes, was a sinner, went home restored to a right relationship with God. His record of sin had been wiped clean, paid in full, sins forgiven, covered, not counted against him. And in its place, the righteousness that every person needs in order to enter the kingdom of God is credited to his account, so that God views him as having not just not sinned, but as having perfectly obeyed. So that definition was implicit in the text, but I think the main thrust of this story is meant to correct a mistaken understanding of how a person is justified. And Jesus is setting out here to correct the Pharisees' false understanding with the gospel truth that sinners are justified only if they trust in Christ alone. In essence, the story that Jesus tells provides the answer to the question, how can sinners go home justified? And the answer comes to us in verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So quite simply, the answer to the question, how can sinners go home justified, is this. And this is an answer that you need to have on the tip of your tongue when someone asks you for the hope that you have. You must humbly trust in Christ alone. That's the answer. That's it. You see, we're not left wondering really what the issue is at hand. We see that laid out very clearly in verse 9. Look with me there. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So where Jesus is butting heads with the Pharisees is at the level of their conscious trust, their their faith, their belief, which manifests itself in pride and looking down on others. Specifically, he aims his words to put to death and to drive an arrow through their proud hearts which trust in their religious and moral good works. Their supremacy over the sinners of society, the worst, the scum of society, as though that gives them sufficient righteousness to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is getting at the issue which is faith. So as I see it, the issue boils down to the conscious activity of Proud trust in self versus humble trust in Christ. That word that you see there, trust, the Bible sometimes uses the word faith or belief, and it's a common word. Right? We see it written on signs. People have tattoos of the word faith or trust, and they they have Bible verses, favorite Bible verses that have to do with faith and trust. And that's not wrong. But sometimes, when words are so common, they can be subject to redefinition and confusion. And so, I think it's helpful for us just to think of specifically what it means to trust. And this is helpful for you as Christians as well, because as you are called by Christ to make disciples and you are called to tell people about the gospel and the cult, to call them to put their faith in Christ, you need to know specifically what it means to believe or to trust. And so I think a helpful way for us to think through this definition of trust is to to view trust as what I call calculated confidence. Calculated confidence. You see, that word trust has this idea of being persuaded by something or someone so much so that then you put your confidence in that thing to deliver in a particular or expected way. It's calculated in that a person first weighs whether or not something's trustworthy. But then it also has this idea of confidence or reliance because after a person calculates whether or not something is trustworthy, then the will acts to rely or to lean on that thing with confidence that it will deliver according to their expectations. I think actually an illustration perhaps from Hiking or mountain climbing might be helpful in this regard. I'm not sure how many of you have hiked mountains, but sometimes when you get to certain uh, rock ledges where you have a steep cliff, they, they have put chains along these rock walls. And they've anchored these chains into the rocks, and the purpose of them is that you would lean back on these chains to help you get around a certain ledge, which would be more dangerous if you didn't. And I see that that's similar to what we have here in terms of trust. We have two very different persons who calculate the value of their life's work very differently, and then they lean with confidence on two very different chains, so to speak. And there are two very different outcomes. So faith or trust is at the heart of how a person goes home justified. But what about the object of trust? What does this passage teach us specifically that We are to trust in if we are to be justified. And I think the answer comes for us by means of a gospel warning and a gospel promise. See, the Pharisees' response before God serves as the example of a gospel warning which says, If you trust in any of the works you perform to save, then you will be humbled in judgment. Notice the Pharisee's appraisal of the value of his own works, and then where he puts his confidence. Look with me again at the text. In verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. You see, the surprising thing about this parable, the the thing that would shock the readers and hearers of the day, was that the Pharisees are actually good people. These are highly moral people. These are the people who have traditional views of marriage and sexuality. These are the ones who have conservative views of Scripture and believe that God actually gave them the Bible. These are the churchgoers. These are the family men. These are the conservative-leaning members of society. And it's precisely these very good things that this Pharisee believes makes him righteous before God and why God should let him into his kingdom. Notice how he calculates his works. I think this is important for us to pay attention to. It's the comparison game. God, I thank you that I'm not like fill in the blank or even like this tax collector. You see, the Pharisee praises the value of his works by comparing himself with the faults of others. That's the standard that he's using to measure what, whether or not he's righteous enough for God. And then when he does that, when he compares himself with others, he thinks, well, that person's so bad, so God must be happy to have me on his team. And so then he leans with confidence and trusts in those good things, those works, as a reason why God should give him the two thumbs up. See, there's a warning for you as well. The warning is this, that pride often manifests itself in calculating the value of your works by comparing them with the failures of others rather than against the perfection of God's own holiness. It ought to send warning signals to you if you're constantly comparing yourself with others and looking down on others with contempt like this Pharisee because of what you do and don't do compared to what they do and don't do. You see, this natural inclination towards self-trust and looking down on others is still present today as much as it was back then. And this pharisaical attitude of of giving yourself a boost in self-confidence by looking at the worst of people is still common. Perhaps some of you have this kind of pharisaical attitude at times and that you constantly look down on others and use that to kind of boost yourself up, boost your self-confidence. Well, at least I don't do drugs. At least I'm not committing adultery. At least I'm not a thief. At least I'm not a murderer. Fill, Fill in the blank. Whatever sin it is, you're always comparing yourself to others. Brothers and sisters, beware the trap of appraising your righteousness according to the standard of better than so-and-so rather than according to the standard of God who is the standard of righteousness. And that's the standard we have to meet. I want you to notice also how religious this man is. He gives his offerings. He gives tithes of all that he gets. And he fasts twice a week which is going even above and beyond what the law commanded him. He's a super moral, law-keeping guy. He's a religious man. But it's an ironically sad reality that one of the most damning confidences for many people is devout religious ritualism. You see, it's not just the people that come knocking on your doors with pamphlets that are trapped and deceived by religion. It's not just the Muslims or the Hindus or the Buddhists or whatever religion it is out there. There's many people in the pews in churches today who who are confident in themselves because they're good religious people. And they claim to be believers because, well, I've memorized parts of the Bible and I've loved my family and I attend church regularly and I give generously of all that I get. And to be clear that these are all good and godly practices that Christians are called to do. But these, Jesus says, and he's making absolutely clear by setting this contrast up, these good religious things, these good works, these fruits of faith are never the basis for your standing before God. I warn you, if you appraise your religious devotion to be quite high, and then you put your confidence in those very things to be sufficient righteousness to enter God's kingdom, then I fear that you might be farther from the kingdom of God than the drug addict or the thief or the murderer or the adulterer who has confessed their unrighteousness before God and who has humbly cried out for his merciful pardon. You see, the Pharisees trod this path, and they were confident in themselves. They trusted in themselves But the harrowing reality for many people in churches today is that this Pharisee is a warning. Many of these good conservative religious Pharisees ended up in hell all the while thinking they were going to heaven. May it not be said of you that you were a religious person and a spiritual person. That you were a good person. But that's what you trusted in to deliver you in God's courtroom. I think there's also another warning for us as Christians here today. Don't miss what the Pharisee actually prays, where he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. Do you see that in the text? I thank you. You see the Pharisees acknowledging that God is actually the one responsible for all these good things. He's giving credit to God as the one who works these good moral fruits in his life. And the warning for you as Christians is this. That nothing you do, even the fruits of your sanctification, that God is working in you by the power of his Holy Spirit through his word. Nothing that comes from within you, nothing that you do or perform, is ever the basis for god 's verdict whether a person is justified or goes home the other. Jesus is doing everything he possibly can to cut down false belief in self. He 's making it as clear as possible that sinners are not justified by their works, but only when they humble themselves and trust in His merciful provision. So that's the warning we have from the tax collector, or the Pharisee rather. But then we come to the tax collector whose contrasting response comforts us with a gospel promise, and the promise is this. If you trust in Christ alone to save you, you will go home justified. That's the answer to our question. If you trust in Christ alone to save you, Notice how different the tax collector's prayer is. In verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Friends, these are the words of a man who has humbly and rightly calculated the worth of his life's deeds before a holy God. He knows that he is not worthy of being anywhere near the presence of a holy God because he's full of sin, and so he stands far off. You see that in his posture. And he knows that in his state of sin and rebellion, he has no right to approach God with confidence, and so he doesn't even look up to heaven with confidence that God will even hear him. And the fact that he cries out for mercy means that he acknowledges that he's worthy of God's judgment for his sin. He confesses, he's in agreement with God that I am worthy of spending eternity in hell because of what I've done. You see, he too, like the Pharisee, calculates the value of his works, of his life's performance. But the difference between the two is that the tax collector calculates the value of his works against the backdrop of God's holiness, according to God's standard, rather than by comparing himself and looking down on others. You see, his calculation is in agreement with God's. On his own, he is a sinner deserving of judgment. He confesses that. He humbles himself and realizes, I have nothing to offer God on my own. Even on my best days, when I come to the temple and I'm praying, I don't say, well, at least I'm not like those pagans who don't even pray to you. Even on his best days, he knows he hasn't met the standard of Righteousness. And so he cries out for mercy. And it's here that we see God opening this tax collector's eyes to rightly assess the value of another person's works to save. The value of Christ. You see, I think if we dig just a little bit below the obvious, we see that it's God's only son, Jesus Christ, who is the specific object of trust. In other words... What this text, the point that this text makes implicitly is that the only way to be justified is if you consciously trust or rely on or depend on what Christ has done to save you. Look with me at that word there in verse 13 where he says, Be merciful to me. Do you see that word? Be merciful. That word can actually also be translated this way. Be propitiated, which is a big theology word. That propitiation, all, all it means is satisfy your wrath. No longer be opposed to me because of my sin. No longer hold your judgment over me because of my rebellion. And it's a word that's often used in the context of the need for a sacrifice that must die in order to pay the penalty for sins. What I'm getting at here, brothers and sisters, is that this tax collector's petition for mercy is a word that is used in the context of sacrifice language. And we know of only one sacrifice by which our sins can be taken away. This sacrifice was made 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem Where a man named Jesus Christ, a perfectly righteous man, voluntarily took upon himself the sins of the world. And he bore those sins. He bore the judgment for those sins that we deserved. This is what Paul writes again to the Romans For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift in Jesus. See, when this tax collector cries out for mercy, what he's saying to God is no longer be wrathful towards me. No longer look at me as a sinner guilty and worthy of death and eternal hell. But look instead to the sacrifice that you provided in your Son who bore my sins for me. And whose perfect life of obedience is credited to my account if I believe. He's leaning with full confidence on God's merciful provision, Jesus Christ. That's why I say you must trust in Christ alone. There's a a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people even in churches. People who bear the name of Christ. Who are wandering trajectories that are dangerous, and they say, well, it doesn't matter. All you need to do is have faith in God. And whatever God that is for you, as long as it's sincere faith, that that saves. But the testimony of scriptures say otherwise, that there is only one provision for salvation, and there's only one object of our confidence, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, slain for sinners. And if you trust in him, you have no reason to fear judgment. And you have full confidence that God will show you mercy because he has promised to do so in his word. You can bank on that with 100% certainty. So this parable cuts away pride. Perhaps some of you, as I said... Find yourself comparing yourselves with others and always looking down on others and giving yourself a boost in self-confidence because you don't do what other people do. And it's meant to cut away that kind of pride and self-righteousness. Perhaps you just need to be reminded of the gospel truth this morning that God saves sinners by faith alone. And that you walk away with thankfulness in your hearts because God saves sinners. Sinners. Either way, there's a warning for Christians and there is a promise as well. Beware the tendency of self-trust and rejoice in the fact that God has provided a way for you to be justified even though you be guilty. In the last couple minutes that we have remaining, I just want to finish by taking justification by faith to the streets. Let's Let's apply this in a couple specific ways. I have a a word of warning and then a word of exhortation as well. And the warning is simply this. Going home, the other, is a horrific sentence of death. Those four words that you see in verse 14, look with me again. Rather than the other, Those are chilling and they're not meant to be taken lightly. You see, it's not just that one man went home to a big screen TV and the other had to live in a tent without running water. It's not just that one had more rewards in heaven than the other. What the issue is, is that the Pharisee, because he trusted in himself, he went home unjustified. In other words, he went home still left to pay for his sins on his own. And the tax collector, because he trusted in God's merciful provision, Jesus Christ. Well, he goes home justified. For those of you this morning who don't believe in God. Perhaps you have your reasons. Science doesn't verify it. I can't swallow the pill of God's existence. I can't trust a God who... Can't seemingly keep evil under control. Whatever whatever your reasons are for rejecting God. Maybe you think it's absolute foolishness to trust in what some Middle Eastern man did 2,000 years ago on a cross. That that has absolutely any bearing on what you have and do today and where you will spend eternity. I warn you and I admonish you to reconsider your response to life's biggest question. Am I in a right relationship with the God of the universe. When I stand before him in his courtroom someday. After I die or when he returns. What will be my plea before him? Well I was a moral person. I was a good person. I figured out a lot of things. I came up with a cure for cancer. I whatever it is. Remember nothing you do. Justifies you before God. But God has freely. Freely freely offered you his Son, freely offered you his righteousness, which can be credited to your account, and freely offered his death on the cross, which stands as payment for your sins. So I implore you to trust in Christ today. If you do, you will go home justified right now. Perhaps you're a religious person, Maybe you acknowledge the presence of God or some higher power. Maybe you're into spirituality. I, I, I don't know what it is. You regularly attend church. You give money to missions. And you've done that since you can remember. But if you place your confidence in these very things as to why God should pardon your sins and let you into his kingdom, then you too have been deceived. And it's time for you to center yourself once again on the gospel. And to trust alone, in Christ alone. And to be clothed in his righteousness. And if you're a Christian, this, this warning of the fact that there are two destinies, some go home justi- one goes home justified, and one goes home the other. The fact that there are two destinies, and only two. This is motivation for us never to be idle in your obedience to the great commission to take the gospel and to preach the gospel and to be clear on the gospel finally this morning i have an exhortation for you as believers i hope you're seeing that that this doctrine maybe this isn't maybe this is the 50th time that you've heard about the doctrine of justification by faith But my exhortation to you this morning is that as Christians, you must regularly meditate and faithfully teach this gospel truth that sinners can only go home justified if they humbly trust in Christ alone to save them. Here's a couple reasons why I think that's good for you to regularly meditate. First, God's only going to bring revival and reformation if His gospel, His gospel is believed and taught. Do you desire to see young people across the nation of Canada, in this church, in this city, embrace the gospel and for God to pour out his spirit and give revival? And God only does that when we exalt the gospel that exalts his son. And the only gospel that exalts his son is the one that says, he's done everything for us and all his righteousness is what I need. I must trust in him so you must do the hard work of studying and meditating on this truth so that you can teach it and so that God may grant revival if it be his will second justification by trusting in Christ is the absolute only way so if we get the gospel wrong if we if we decentralize ourselves from this truth then people are still stuck in their sins and cannot know The way out cannot be made right with God if it's not made clear what it means to trust in Christ. And third, and I think this is perhaps maybe most pointedly important for many of you, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren need to hear this gospel. Psalm 78 makes this very clear. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. But keep his commandments. You see, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are bombarded by all sorts of messages. And one of those messages that we hear all around us today, and believe me, I know because I'm living right in that culture, in this stage in life, is, well, what you need is more self-confidence. You need more self-esteem. You need more trust in yourself. You just got to believe in yourself a little bit more. You need to be a moral person. You need to be a a religious person. Whatever it is that the message people are sending to your children, there's a lot of anti-gospel that needs to be corrected with the truth of the true gospel. In your primary duty as parents, in all the different things that God has called you to do, your primary duty is to teach your children the word of god which says sinners can only be justified if they trust in christ do you want to be biblical parents do you, do you want to do biblical grandparenting then it starts and it ends with you knowing the gospel and making it absolutely clear to your kids that they're not good little angels who just need a little bit of therapy but they are sinners who have offended a perfectly holy God, but that God has provided graciously and freely a way out through his Son who has lived a perfect life and who has died and rose again, and that if they trust in him, all that Christ is, is given to them. Finally, justification by faith alone fertilizes and nourishes your soul as a Christian. It, this, this promise that God justifies the sinners apart from their works is a comfort to your soul when you sin. Who here struggles with sin daily? The fact that God's declaration that you are justified is a comfort in your regular struggle and fight against sin. So that even on your worst day, even if it keeps seems like one sin keeps plaguing me over and over and over and over, even when you don't feel justified, God's verdict doesn't change. If you trust in Christ, His verdict doesn't change. And then this compels you to love-filled obedience. It leads to praise and to worship. You see, works are not a bad thing. God's not opposed to good works. He's he's not opposed to your going to church. He calls you and he demands you to do that as a Christian. But the difference is, the difference is that these works are not the basis. They are not the foundation for your standing with God. They are the fruit that results from a heart that is compelled by love. As Paul says to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ is, controls us or another way to say is the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised you see the call of Christ to radical discipleship and to obedience it's not burdensome or difficult when we realize that we're justified not by what we do, but by what Christ has done. It, it frees you up to serve and to suffer as children of the living God because you're not working in order to chip away at your record of debt, but you're working as a son of the kingdom who has been freed and cleared by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, friends, This is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, and it's also the doctrine upon which you personally, your soul before a holy God, stands or falls. If we lose this teaching, we lose our purpose. If you trust in Christ today, or maybe you have years ago, then I think the appropriate response is always, that we go away rejoicing. We go away thankful. And we go away humble. And continue to trust in Christ. And we can go home even today if you have trusted in Christ. Singing these words. The words that we just sang moments ago. My sin. Oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole. Is nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul let's pray father we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves and we we are thankful we are thankful that you graciously provide the pardon and the righteousness that we need to live before you. Father, keep us humble. Keep us trusting in your Son so that when we enter into your kingdom, we may hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. Father, we give you thanks and we give you thanks only because of Christ. And ask that you would help us to apply this truth and to meditate on it, even today and this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.